As Dr. Bloomfield said, the last 12 months have been a roller coaster I didn't choose to buy a ticket for. Uncertainty, rapid change, lack of control, complexity, they're all words that have been bandied about continuously. Alongside that, however, I believe the majority of us have done a blooming good job at adapting. Adapting to bubbles and closed borders, adapting to a world that can shift in a moment, propelling us into lockdowns, adapting our businesses to serve a local economy or working from home, adapting our thinking to challenge old and outdated mindsets. Amongst us, and amongst that environmental context, there will have undoubtedly, though, been moments of loss and hardship for some. Here in New Zealand, that loss may not have come in the format of typical bereavement that we have seen globally. But it may look like loss of freedom, loss of connection, loss of spontaneity, loss of opportunity, loss of access to our regular frame of reference. Others of us may have also found the previous year traumatic. And when I think of that word, my mind wanders to our international tourism operators who overnight lost their entire livelihoods with their legacy. Through loss and trauma, how do people, do we manage and adapt? Do we naturally do this? Or is it a skill set we need to learn and practice? I'm Jackie Maguire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? It means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies, translating them into easy to understand concepts, and providing practical strategies to optimize personal well-being, work, and relationships. Put simply, Mind Brew has been created to help people live the good life. Welcome to season three of Mind Brew. In this episode, I speak to Dr. George Bonanno. George is a professor of clinical psychology at Teachers College of Columbia University, and he's the director of the Loss, Trauma and Emotional Lab. He received his PhD from Yale University in 1991, and his research and scholarly interests have centered on the question of how we as human beings cope with loss, trauma, and other extreme adversity with an emphasis on resilience and the role of flexible coping and emotion regulation processes. In 2019, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Association of Psychological Science and the International Positive Psychology Association. He's the author of The Other Side of Sadness and has a new book which is about to be released this year called The End of Trauma. George, thank you so much for joining me all the way down here in New Zealand. I imagine, given your expertise uh, in in grief and trauma and how people cope through extreme adversity, you have been in hot demand. Um, yes, it's true that um, people have asked uh, a lot, a lot of questions, a lot of a lot of requests for interviews because I think it is a it's the topic of the year. So yes. Do you find you do interviews and everybody asks the same questions or, or do you get some novelty in there? 
Um, there's a, there is a, a bit of novelty. Uh, many of the same topics have been, you know, been cycled through um, a little bit different as the as the pandemic has progressed and, and, and a little peppered with a little bit of novelty, but often it's more or less the same topics, yeah. We'll we'll try and make this as uh, interesting <laughs> and and challenging as possible for you, George. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I I think probably here in New Zealand, our circumstances are are quite different to the US and, and to many people around the world in terms of you know we, we've had twenty six deaths here compared to hundreds of thousands. Uh, mm-hmm. Until the last three days, we've spent our entire summer living as per normal within our bubble of New Zealand. So whilst there's border restrictions in and out of the country with MIQ facilities, for those of us on the ground, uh, we're really living a relatively normal life. But in, in saying that, I, I think that doesn't take away from the fact that people have had to face huge challenge in the last year and continue to do so. And I think that idea of loss and challenge and trauma has been challenged for people in terms of loss isn't just about death. Loss is about freedom, about uh, globalisation, access to family, what we consider normal. You know, our expectations of how the world should be and work have suddenly disappeared. And I think that's been hugely confronting to people. Um I also think here here for us, one of our main challenges has been economic challenges in terms of business certainty and job loss. Uh, and, you know, that for some people, especially our tourism industry, has been hugely traumatic. So, you know, we might have a slightly different take to those that are at, at, at the peak of crisis, but I don't think that means that New Zealanders haven't been impacted. But, you know, I suppose, George, what's, what's useful uh, for me, for our listeners to start with, um, is if you're an expert in resilience, and I, and I think you now call it flexibility rather than resilience, uh, or that's where your work is heading to, starting to go, I'd be really interested to hear from your perspective what that actually means in a behavioural on the ground, what I might see, hear, feel, uh, you know, in a daily basis and the reason I'm asking you that question is it's a word that's not very you know it's not liked by a lot of New Zealanders resilience I worked in the field for resilience for a long time and it was um and I'd I'd almost have to say it was a disliked word uh, in our culture so I'd be really interested to hear your definition Okay, great so um, first of all just to qualify I, I don't use flexibility interchangeably with resilience flexibility is by the by, based on the research I do, flexibility is the process by which we can get to resilience. And okay. I can explain that in some detail. Yeah. Um, I don't like the word resilience really either. Um, I mean, it's an okay word, but I have no particular investment in it. And when we first began to study what we study, I, I actually kind of regretted calling it resilience. So I don't think of resilience in terms of people being resilient. I don't think of people having resilient traits. I'll explain that in a bit, but I, I really, when I talk about resilience, I'm really talking about an outcome. Like people have been through something and they're okay afterwards, and that's resilience. And that's really how the, the main way I use it. Um, so, it, Which is quite different, so it, George, isn't it? Because often when we talk about resilience or you read it in the literature, resilience is the process, not the outcome. In terms of yeah, what people well, are doing yeah. to reach to reach uh, growth or recovery, or so that is a different take on the word. Yeah, and that's really the popular take on it. That's sort of the 
the the the the word as it as it's bandied about in kind of a um, you know a, a, a colloquial way. But I'm I consider myself a scientist. You know, I'm a professor and a, and a researcher, and um, you know. A, thinker, I hope. Sometimes the thinking part sometimes eludes me, but, you know, um, so I'm very careful about terms. I'm very careful about what I actually, defining what I'm, what I'm studying and what I mean. So when we do, when we talk about people being resilient, that's actually kind of a, I hate to use this phrase, but it's a little bit sloppy to talk that way because people aren't actually resilient. People might have traits that promote resilience, but um, there aren't people walking around that, that these are resilient people and these are not resilient people. That's actually not a very accurate way to look at it. So when we look at resilience that, that results from, you know, something happens and people are resilient, then we try to understand what is it those people are doing to, that allow them to be resilient. But I should back up a little bit and first make sure it's, I'm clear that most people are actually end up being resilient to, to even the worst things that happen to them. And we've, we've now shown this in decades of research that when we follow people over time, when something really bad happens, and when we can, we, we start before something bad happens, if we can, if we can you know, do that kind of research, the, the majority of people are almost always basically okay afterwards, even after the worst things. With maybe a few exceptions that that you know that we haven't really been able to study, like really like things like torture, which I think torture is probably the worst thing that can happen to a person. But uh, apart from that, with, there isn't really any good data on torture. You know, hurricanes, natural disasters, um, traumatic events, losses, um, medical emergencies. People, most people, cope with those things pretty well, like adequately. And if I reclaim my accuracy, George, I'm pretty sure it's about two thirds of people from your research. Yes, exactly. By your words, okay, after even the really most difficult, challenging situation. I suppose, you know, as a psychologist myself, I'm going, well, what's your definition of okay? Yeah. So, I mean, okay is, you know, now there's a colloquial word for you, but basically, when we when we we say people are showing this resilient outcome, it's basically they're able to function. They're basically able. You know, you can go back even to this classic definition that Freud used. Now, I'm no Freudian, but you know, to love and to work. So to be able to be emotionally available to other people and to be able to work, to concentrate, to be able to focus enough to do a job. Those are you know basic functioning in life. Now, when people go through a traumatic event when they suffer a loss, people do get pretty upset, sometimes for a few weeks, sometimes longer, but they're still able, if they're showing that resilient outcome, they're still able to keep functioning during that time. It's when those events keep us from functioning, then we get into the realm of real difficulties. So people who show the resilient outcome, they're they're still keeping, they're still on that track, they're still able to function. In fact, we define resilience as a stable trajectory of healthy functioning. And people have been through something aversive and they're still able to show a stable trajectory of healthy functioning. George, where does the concept of post-traumatic growth come into your work in terms of we can go through adverse things and actually potentially uh, come out stronger, more connected, with more meaning uh, after adversity? 
I I don't use that word really ever. Post traumatic growth. I, I I'm I hope I don't scandalize anybody by saying this, but I I don't like the concept at all. I think it's a very sloppy concept. It's it's possible that people do grow, and I'm I have no actually I should say I have no doubt that people do grow after adverse events, but we really don't know much about it. The way it's been studied has been really mostly by questionnaires or by asking people if they've grown. And the research shows that actually the people who say they've grown are usually the people who are suffering the most. And there's really very little, in a, in a few studies that have actually measured how people change over time, there's very little relationship between people actually improving or getting better in some areas of their life and them saying that they've grown. So when people say they've grown, they're kind of saying, I feel like I must have grown. But I hate to, to, you know, I hate to be a kind of, I don't know what the word is for this, a kind of a, a psychological Scrooge. But um, I don't think that that's it. When people say they're grown, that that's actually growth. It's really more of a kind of a belief in growth or something along those lines. So it, I, I shouldn't be quite so dramatic about this. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I care a lot about that these concepts make sense. Um, so the idea that trauma leads to growth is just taken off without really any data to support it, right? So trauma, traumatic events are not fun. They're, they cause, you know, even in the most in people show resilient outcomes, they cause traumatic stress. They upset people. They cause nightmares. They cause people to, you know, feel uneasy for a little while. And usually when that abates, people are basically okay. There isn't a whole lot of evidence that there's real, there's genuine growth happening. And people grow all the time for all kinds of reasons. And maybe, you know, people grow because of exercise or all, and undoubtedly some people grow as a result of highly aversive events. But I think the kind of cultural idea that trauma leads to growth is really kind of a fiction. I hate to say that. And, I hate, and again, I, there's probably a better word than psychological Scrooge, but this seems to be my role and often. I don't think it's actually very real. Well, well, I think what you're also saying, and for those that aren't scientists, you know, part of what's interesting about your work, George, is that A, a you look at people in the real world, not just in a lab, and B, you're interested in prospective studies, which is, as you were saying before, you know, we get data on you before something crappy happens and we follow that up afterwards. So we actually know your life story rather than a point in time. And I think what you're saying is lots of the research around post-traumatic growth might just be self-questionnaire point in time. So you might find correlation, but that's not necessarily causal. Yeah. And yeah. it might be perception rather than reality. Um. But it's interesting, as, a, as someone who, in my history, George, I've worked with businesses around supporting well-being, mm -hmm. around supporting mental health, um, and, and, and like you'll know, resilience became a buzzword and many organisations invested in resilience training for their people. And, you know, I've, I've always looked at resilience, not necessarily the word, but the process of how do we support people to have really good skills on board so to be able to regulate their emotions well to be able to identify helpful or unhelpful thoughts to really kind of prioritize who in their life are good support systems or who in their life are you know are the drainers and how do you prioritize good people and support etc you know and I suppose if your research is showing actually you know two-thirds of us will be okay in those face in that face of extreme adversity and hardship is there a point to trying to share that knowledge and skill set with people 
by doing that, are we actually mucking it up? Are we mucking with people's natural skill sets that they already have and confusing them? Uh, or, or how do we harness people's individual skill yeah. sets and kind of yeah. help optimize that? It's kind of, I'm going to ask you to help me uh, unpack my confusion in this topic, actually, yeah. George. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'd, I'd be happy to. I mean, it, I, I have a new book coming out. It's it's not going to be out till the fall. It's called The End of Trauma, and um, which is a sort of provocative title. Um, the publisher liked the title. Um, but the, the point of that book is really about how we understand what it is that, that allows us to be to, for two-thirds of the population or, or on average to come out basically okay to be show that resilient outcome after a potentially traumatic event. And the, 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 the magic uh, sauce there, if I may use that, that phrase, is, is flexibility, what I'm calling flexibility. So if I, if I can back up and explain this a little bit. So the, the, the way this came about is I've been studying these outcomes, these resilient outcomes, you know, these two-thirds of the people exposed to highly adverse events who show this resilient outcome for a couple decades now. And we've been able to identify a number of factors that predict those outcomes, you know, and there's a kind of a growing list. Other researchers have identified other factors and we started compiling a list of, you know, these are the things that, that will predict you like what person will likely be resilient. But the curious thing about it is um, all of those things all of those predictors of who will be resilient and who not um, have very small effects in the language of statistics. They have very small effect sizes. They only explain a little bit of who will actually be resilient and they overlap a lot with other things. So when you, when you, even when you gather a bunch of these things, they don't tell you very much. So the, the, I call this the resilience paradox. We know what predicts who will be resilient, but we are not able to predict who will be resilient and who not. So we know it correlates with resilience, but we won't be able to predict who will be resilient and who not. And I, I've puzzled over this for a long time. And this led to the work I was doing on flexibility. And gradually, um, I began to pull this together to, to see how it, how it can explain the story. Um, to begin with, um, a truism across the natural world is that nothing is always helpful. Nothing is free of, of, of cost. Everything in nature has costs and benefits. I always use the example of the peacock's tail. Uh, we have peacocks in my neighborhood in New York, right down the street, actually. I live by Columbia University. My daughter would these... enjoy that. She likes peacocks. Oh, they're so amazing. They're so beautiful. They're stunning. Um, but these are big, meaty birds, um, they're big birds, right? And and they when you appro- when one approaches a peacock, they do not like it, and they yet they let out this piercing cry. So there's a great story that Charles Darwin, a great story when Charles Darwin in 1859 published the Origin of Species, which was the, the his evolutionary theory. It caused him a lot of grief. He knew it would happen because you know he was going to challenge a lot of bu- views about God and things like that. And he was a kind, you know, he had it all, he had ulcers. He was not, you know, he was a struggling man. He was kind of shy. Then a year later, he wrote a letter to Asha Gray, who was a botanist who had, had favorably reviewed the origin of species. And he said, if let me see if I can get this quote right, whenever I see the peacock's tail, whenever I see a feather from a peacock's tail, it makes me sick. And the reason he said that, which, you know, this is a very 
a very provocative statement because they're so beautiful. The reason he said that is he couldn't explain it from an evolutionary perspective. He had just published his book, made, took a great chance of publishing this book, arguing that the, 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 the features of different creatures, um, the adaptations, the behaviors and, 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 uh, and physical features of different creatures evolved to promote survival. And here was this bird, this big bird with a lot of meat on it. Has, has a gigantic tail that essentially says to predators, hey, over here, look at me, right? Look at me, come eat me. And also when they have the tail, they can't fly very well. So Darwin, it took Darwin about 10 years to work that out. And he finally solved this problem by, by coming up with what he called sexual selection. So that the one, a, a creature that will survive longer will pass on its genes, so the survival uh, you know, behaviors become part of their genetic uh, history, but they can also pass on their genes and, uh, and and certain traits will be passed on if they are more likely to lead to sex, basically. So the peacock's tail is what 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 what, what is attracted by the, the female. And so the, and the, the females and with birds that have these beautiful plumages, the females are incredibly particular about which males are made with. They have this refined taste in the in the male plumage. So, but by this, by building in these two mechanisms, Darwin literally built in costs and benefits in evolutionary theory. That that you have a tail that that is both beneficial because it it will it will more likely lead to sex and lead lead that that particular uh, peacock with the best tail will be more likely to reproduce and pass on its genes. At the same time, that tail is a real danger to predators, and there are many many examples like that in nature. Uh, just quickly, the other one I really like is the cheetah speed. Cheetahs are the fastest mammals on Earth, fastest terrestrial mammals, but they there's a cost to speed, and that cost is stamina. So cheetah cannot run for very long, and if they don't catch their prey right away, it doesn't matter how fast they are, they lose their they lose whatever they were chasing. So when we look back at humans, we have this exact same kind of cost and benefits in literally everything we do. No behavior is always adaptive. Even the things that, that seem like they're just perfect behaviors, like, like support from other people or positive emotions or optimism or something like that. All of these behaviors have costs too, and they only work in some situations and in other situations, they don't work as well, or they're actually even costly. Um, so flexibility is really about, and, and leading to resilience is really about knowing what to do in what situation. What, what, what's the right behavior in the right situation at the right time? And that there's a, you know, in my work, we've got a lot more complex model about how people work that out. Um, and um, but but the gist of it is that people are making those decisions. So when somebody's confronted with, you know, a, a, an earthquake or a hurricane or a, um, you have lots of earthquakes in New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken, right? <laughs> Sorry to laugh. We do. Um, but you had a lot of them in a few years ago. God, you were having so many. Um, but, you know, when those things are happening, you know, the people have to choose what is the behavior, what's happening right now, what's the behavior that was, what, what's, the, what's the coping mechanism that I can use for this particular situation? But it, those, those coping behaviors will not necessarily work so well in another situation. So by, if we focus only on you know, a few particular behaviors, we're, we're doing people a disservice, I think, because we, it, it leads to the illusion that these are the correct behaviors, and they only will work sometimes. 
So it is flexibility, George, that ability to have a skill set on board, apply the right skill set at the right time, dependent on the context, and then be able to kind of look at that and go, is that working? Is that not? Do yes, I need to exactly adapt? Right. Do I need to adapt that? That process, does that lead to a, a higher chance of a resilient outcome compared to just the individual skills, that ability to well, be flexible? I'm, that's that's what I'm proposing. That definitely that the people with that skill. Now we there are a lot of moving parts in this idea. So we're 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 still trying to find the best ways to research it. We recently did a study where we we have these three components. You just met you just named them actually. So I'll, I'll repeat them. It's we we have something called context sensitivity, which is the ability to read the context, read the situation, and what's happening to me. What do I need to do? Then we have another component called repertoire, which is having kind of a toolbox of behaviors to use, a toolbox that I'm good at, things that I know I can use pretty well. And, you know, people differ in these, these people differ in their ability to read the context, they differ in their, uh, read the situational demands, they differ in the kind of repertoire they have at their disposal. And then the third component is, um, is this ability kind of to monitor and correct as we go along. I'm trying this particular behavior to see if it's going to help me with this problem, but I need to pay attention to see if it actually does. And if it, if it doesn't, I need to either modify it or try something else. So this kind of, you know, reading what's happening, choosing from my toolbox, and then um, monitoring and correcting as I need to go. These three pieces um, at least, as I, as we understand it now, these seem to be the three main pieces of this flexible process. And we've recently done some research basically to show that most people are reasonably good at these. This is the good news. Most people are reasonably good at these things. And that's not surprising because most people are resilient. Most people show the resilient outcomes. So we, we, we expected that most people would have some basic skill in these three processes. They're part of normal uh, healthy living. Then we find some people, of course, are really good at these things. And then some people have deficits in one or another of these components. Some people are not good at reading situations, or they don't have much of a repertoire, or they're not good at, they are not necessarily paying attention and correcting as they go along. So I have two questions. Do you know the people that are really good at it, do we know why or how they got really good at it? No, we don't know that. We don't know. This is all pretty new. I mean, I've been doing this, you know, I mean, I, I've been doing this for research 25 for about 15 years. years. Well, I've been doing the research on flexibility for about 15 years. And the other research, I, I started, I began studying resilience about 30 years ago. The flexibility research about 15 years ago. But, you know, I, I, we prod along, plot along, you know, we get some government money and we do some research and we figure it out, we do some more. And then maybe if, if, if it catches on, other people will do more. But we don't know that. We do know that there's a kind of a genetic component to these resilient outcomes. This is something we've recently found. And perhaps there's a genetic component to flexibility, but I don't know. The thing, one thing that really interested me about flexibility, and one thing I, one reason I pursued it, because I thought it was something that people could learn. It could be taught and people could get better at it. And so, you know, and there's a logical learning curve to this, to these processes. 
These are things we're taught when we're when we're children. You know, the reading the the situation, what's happening to me? What do I need to do? The reading what's what the demands are. This is something all children are taught. You know, it, it begins with the most basic things. You know, you can't have what is it that phrase? Your inside voice and your outside voice. You know, when children are yelling, you can't be loud in this situation, or no, you can't run around here, or no, you can't say those things in this situation, or you know. So children be are are taught by their parents, by their caregivers, to begin to pay attention to context, to situational differences. And as we become adults, we internalize a lot of that, and we get better at it, and we learn more and more. Um, you know, we, we, we are confronted with more complex situations. Um, and, you know, I mean, in New York, people walk down, you walk down the subway platform, lots of people it's it's sometimes a little dirty sometimes a little smelly you know there sometimes it looks more or less dangerous every new yorker people that lived in new york silently and automatically purvey the situation look is there is it safe over here is there some person i don't want to stand next to over here is this you know and and that happens all automatically right in a, in a crowded situation in other situations where there aren't those kind of pressures there are other kind of situational pressures we all do that all the time so it's kind of a quasi-automatic thing that we do. Um, um, but um, the learning has happened, and perhaps some people didn't learn quite as well, or they, they didn't have the best examples, or, you know, that it's probably, to some extent, the product of learning. I don't know. And the same with the other components. Um, we're beginning to explore teaching people these things. And I think, um, you know, or, or, or enhancing their skills. And some of my colleagues are doing that. It's not the kind of thing I typically do. Um, some of my colleagues, for example, working in cancer or other type of really high-stress situations, um, they've discovered that when you talk to people in those situations about the skills they can use, it's very hard in those situations for people to learn new skills because they're already stressed out. They're already you know, struggling just to keep themselves together. It's a lot easier and a lot more effective if, for people to either going into those situations or in more, you know, the more and more benign uh, context of daily life to try to learn new coping skills and enhance that repertoire component. Well, that's my, that was kind of my thought process, George, which, you know, that the tagline to the work I do everywhere is I want to help people live the good life. For me as a psychologist, it's like, how do you get the most out of your life? And for a long time, psychologists have just looked at the deficit of our weaknesses, what's gone wrong, processing childhood trauma, da, da, da. And, and, and very much I'm driven by, how, you know, how do we support New Zealanders, people around the world to, to really get the most out of life? And part of that is, I think, looking at that middle part of your process, what skills do we have on board? And, you know, whether it's emotional flexibility, cognitive re restructuring, whatever that is, how do we help people learn those in a place where they can take them on board, as you're saying, when they're not in high stress, high crisis, when their brains are able to adapt and learn? And part of my commentary has been I don't think it should just be left to parents because if they were never taught it themselves or didn't learn it how can they pass that on to their kids and then we continue to have this skill gap in our population where a certain group of people uh, learn it at home and they have it role modeled to them they have calm home environments etc uh, and then another group won't and you know I've always been a believer that there should be really good teaching in schools from a curriculum basis 
to help our young people from a very young age have the, have these skill sets on board. And I suppose I'm wondering if, well, two thirds of us are pretty good at this already. Do we need to be doing that, or am I backing up the wrong tree? Well, um, that could be an argument for uh, for somebody who who isn't interested in in you know enhancing these skills. On the other hand, I always think, well, two thirds. You know, if we're talking about severe emotional distress, two thirds is not you know sixty six percent odds. It's not too bad. But you know, I would I wouldn't mind a little higher odds. You know, so you would you would want to know. I think you one people would want to know um, ways that they can uh, improve their chances of coping well with adversity. And I think people are very interested in that because you know certainly there's a lot of popular culture around improving resilience and building resilience and whatnot. Uh, but I, I think I mean when we talk about you know widespread curriculum, I am always a little uneasy because. Um, I I always I feel like that there really needs to be science informed, you know, or, or uh, science literate. So, for example, one of the really interesting findings that came out of our work was that the ability to suppress emotions is enormously adaptive. Mm. Uh, and the suppression has a bad name. It has, you know, and that's one of the reasons I, I I went down that road. There's a kind of a common idea that suppressing emotions is not good. It's not healthy. And in fact. When we measure the ability to suppress emotion, when we measure suppression as an ability, we find in, in one of the studies we did after 9-11, we found people who had the ability to suppress emotion that predicted who would be coping well down the road. And another finding from that study was that we also measured people's ability to express emotion, to be expressive, which also predicted a better outcome. Being expressive is good. You know, there are times when you just need to communicate what's happening. Even in, in crisis, sometimes it's hugely important. But we found in that study that when we measure both of these things, the ability to express emotion and the ability to suppress emotion, they were both adaptive, but people who were only good at one of those um, skills did not cope any better. So if being really good at expressing emotion is not so useful if you can't suppress emotion. Right. And that's that yeah. ability to choose what's most helpful in the certain exactly. time. Because yeah. I yeah. imagine eternal suppression becomes very unhelpful. That's what we would call, in layman's terms, bottling it up and never looking at it or addressing, addressing it again. It's, but sometimes it's important to just to kind of to not to not let the feelings, um, to push them away in a sense, in a certain situation. For example, when you when you really need to concentrate on something or when you really just have a, need to focus on a test, then maybe five minutes, then maybe 10 minutes, right? So is that, is that suppression or is that distraction? Um, could be either one. I mean, we, we have been able to measure a suppression. I mean, I I'm got another reason I got interested in suppression, just to be candid here, is that I'm I'm uh, Sicilian by uh, by ethnicity, and I grew up in a household of Sicilians and, with lots of emotion. Know, lots of emotion. My father used to yell at the television at the top of his voice when there was a. I mean, this is mostly for sporting matches, which is not so uncommon. But, you know, just a, it's, it was a very kind of emotional, expressive household. And then I found as I grew up and moved in another context, that wasn't always, you know, an appropriate response. So, you know, I learned as, a, as I had to learn and I realized that was something I learned as an adult. OK, I need now not to be so expressive or I need not to feel so much in this situation. Um, but it really is. It's it's this constant. Um, you know, we, we, we're not always in crisis situations, but when we are, when the stakes are higher, 
um, we really need to kind of assess, you know, what is what works in this situation. This led to a, a, a an idea that I, I talked about in the first book I'd published, um, which I will shamelessly plug. It was called The Other Side of Sadness, which was a, a book about bereavement. And um, I coined the phrase coping ugly hmm. to capture the idea that um, in some situations you might actually do something that wouldn't be considered healthy, but it might be just the right thing to do in a, in a certain situation hmm. um, because it just sort of solves whatever your, the, the problem is in that situation. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not healthy all the time, but it's healthy in a particular situation. So if we, if we should kind of, regroup for people now what your research is showing is that in the face of acutely stressful or extremely traumatic or challenging situations most of us will be okay and what helps make us okay isn't necessarily those individual differences on what skill sets we might have that's very small amount of the variance but the hypothesis is it's that ability to judge the context correctly choose what might be adaptive and helpful for me right now and then continue to reassess and and shift up when we need to in order to manage in order to manage that situation and that's quite different to other theories other popular concepts where it really is about if you have a cookie cutter set of uh, skills you'll you'll be okay in life and have I got that right in a summary? Yes, yeah, yeah, very, very nice summary. Yeah, thank you. And so, and so, I, I suppose again, my brain always goes in multiples. George, I'm then going, okay, well, that's acute stresses. What are we, what are we talking about when we have chronic stress or chronic okay. challenge? Because that's what we've been in for the last 13, 14 months, right? This is not. Yeah. Um, I've had a spinal cord injury. This is not. I've seen a, you know, I, I've been on White Island and the volcano has erupted. This is not moth shooting. This is continual uh, stress yeah. and interruption and, yeah. and and unexpected change in my life. And does the same models and principles apply or, or not in that circumstance? Um, I, I'm I'm so glad you brought brought it up because in fact yes this model is applies in even um, I think even more appropriately to chronic stressors. So the the COVID epid pandemic is I think kind of chronic mild depending on who a person you know everybody's got different um, different situations. Some people have been faced with you know really demanding stressors. Other people. Less so, and I think for most of us, it's mild to moderate chronic stress for a long time now, you know, and it does wear us out. You know, physical problems, minor physical problems are on the rise, you know. Well, um, I just think and, of the low level amygdala activity that's gone on all year where you are slightly on edge and on alert for a long time. And absolutely, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I developed a pinched nerve in my jaw. And that was totally stress, a stress reaction. You know, it was from clenching my jaw at night and it, it, it was bad. So the, this, in, and I've seen it very much so throughout the pandemic that this idea of, of reading a situation, assessing what's happening, and then, you know, using what you can from your, your toolbox and then, it, and, a, and, and then reassessing is very much an ongoing process throughout the pandemic. 
because the pandemic has changed. You know, we've adapted in different ways. We, you know, we adapted differently early on. The stressors, the demands have changed. You know, we've, we, uh, for a little while, um, you know, I, I assume this applies to New Zealand as well. For a short while, everybody was on Zoom and, hey, Zoom's not so bad. This is great. And then Zoom got old really quickly, you know. And, and hugely then, fatiguing. <laughs> hugely fatiguing, right. And, you know, then we found different ways to reach out and then, you know, a certain kind of exercise was okay. And then, it, you know, this, you know, there, there, there were constant changes. And, you know, the, the, the fears have changed. The demands have changed. The political situation in the United States, certainly the political situation has changed. And it's been a kind of constant uh, need to assess. And again, I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like, you know, this never ending process of assessing and then responding and reevaluating assessing but in fact we do this all the time anyway i think is that we 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 go through our lives doing this you know monitoring what's happening to us um and, but i think it's just become more important during this crisis and i you know i think there there're very easy ways to keep this sort of in mind in the book i talk about in fact just using this simple kind of self talk like what's happening to me what do i need to do what what am I able to do and is it working? And these simple phrases, um, because this is essentially the questions we ask. You know, we, I mean, we can even just say, you know, sometimes I find myself doing this, um, uh, in fact, sometimes just saying, why am I feeling this way? What is making me feel this way? I notice I'm not feeling quite good or something. I'm a little uneasy. And I think, well, what? why am I feeling this way? And then I think through a little bit and I realize, okay, this situation or this particular problem that I've been maybe ignoring or that I've, I haven't had time to focus on is, is needs to be solved. And then I, you know, go through the stages, you know. Well, it's been an active participant in your life rather than a passive participant in your life, isn't it? Actually taking time to look and assess and question and, and work out what's important to you and prioritise and all, all those uh, important processes uh, that help Absolutely. you live a good life. Yeah. I also and, and think it takes time though, George, doesn't it? It takes time to do that. And everyone often lives this busy badge of honour life and actually you have to have space to ask yourself those questions. I think that's true. Um, although I don't, I mean, it's not, it's not an onerous task. And I think, though, it's really a question of, I mean, I, I, we all live busy lives, but I mean, I wouldn't certainly be the first person to say that we also need to take a little bit of time to, to you know, to reflect. And, you know, and if we want to be happy, as, you're, as you may, pointed out wonderfully, you, to, to make people, help people live the good life, the good life is involves a little bit of self-reflection, at least, you know, to say, why am I feeling this way? Or is everything okay? Or should I do something? And you know, um, and it, the response that you asked earlier, asked earlier, you know, what about people who say, well, 66%, that's pretty good. I don't need to bother with this stuff. Maybe that's true, but I think most of us want to be a little happier if we can, right? So and these are one of the things, you know, a pretty simple way to kind of, I think, take stock. And I, I, I always think of it as we're doing this anyway, whether we're aware of it or not. So we might as well pay attention to it and do it better. And I suppose that was my second uh, line of thought that I had before, which was, you know, this model that you're creating, the flexibility concept, 
yes, that's very important and pertinent for large challenges, but you know, I've always thought about well-being and mental health and resilience or whatever word you want to use as also how we just manage and navigate the daily stresses in life and the daily bumps in the road, not necessarily, you know, the the, the big bumps, just the little, the mm-hmm. little minor potholes, for example. Um, but I'm guessing that's exactly the same process, whether it's on a small scale or a big scale. Yes, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the research on these things comes from really just dealing with daily daily life. Um, you know, we, we show in our research that when, when the chips are down, when things get serious, these processes become even more important, but they don't become unimportant when, when you know, when sort of we're in our normal mode. You know, I mean, we, when, you know, when we're, we're, when we're living a, a normal kind of daily life, we might, um, you know, not, not be, they might not be quite as urgent but you know, so we we might think about these these processes a little bit less often, um, or you know, let them kind of flow automatically as we see fit. But um, I think that depends on an individual life. But they're definitely they're definitely have come from sort of research and just everyday life. George, if someone's listening to this and they think, "Hey, I'm in the one third. I haven't recovered well from hard hard things in my life. You know, I feel like I've developed depression afterwards, or I've never found my feet again, or it's completely knocked me for six. Are there certain things that would help that cohort of individuals that are different to the two thirds of people that seem to do okay? Um, I don't know if I have a, a great answer to, to that question. It's a good, very good question. Um, I think, it, you know, in, in the research, we've seen that when people have been suffering from, you know, depression or other kinds of, you know, um, of, of, of ill states or, you know, um, um, maladaptive states, um, that if they engage in these processes, they tend to do better. So the same processes can be applied. So, for example, in one of our bereavement studies, we looked at people early on after a loss, and among the people who were depressed, fairly depressed early on after a loss, if they engaged in these kind of uh, uh, flexibility processes, they were more likely to be feeling to be healthy a year later. And there's been some work on depressed people showing that if, with the context sensitivity, you know, reading the cues, if people who have been depressed show this ability to be to read the context then they are more less likely to be depressed the next time they're assessed. Does their depression interfere with their ability to read the concept, the, co- the context correctly because they yeah. might have a negative lens? Well, it's undoubtedly. I mean, undoubtedly, it's more work, sure. And it, these are kind of pernicious problems. Depression is a very pernicious problem because we, we sort of disinvest in things. So, I, you know, I think this is where when people are, are, are seriously depressed or, you know, struggling with other kinds of mental health problems, um, this is why we, we have therapy and this is why we have ways to help people because they, they might need some help doing, you know, help applying these kinds of tools. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean they can't do it on their own, but it's also nice to have someone to help with it. So if we are to take an action-based approach from this, George, because that's what I like, what can people do from, from here? Yeah. And we look at uh, resilience, flexibility, well-being, mental health, you know, and from my perspective and from what the research is, is showing, yes, there are individual skills, but we also need 
uh, systems to support that, whether that's family, whether that's workplaces. Uh, we need communities to support that. And then you need the higher over level, whether that's the government in our community, whether that's uh, the board and the ELT and organisations, you need governance to support that as well. There's multi-layers uh, to how people co cope, adapt, thrive, whatever word you want to use in life. You know, fr from your research, from your belief set, you know, what what can we be doing to help to help support people going forward? What can people do themselves? What can what can we be doing at a group level? What's going to give us the most bang for our buck? <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a that's an interesting question, and I and I I sometimes avoid that question because um, I mean, if I were to answer it, you know, if 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 I were given supreme power to run the world. Um, you know, or something silly like that. You know, I mean, I would no doubt focus on the kind of flexibility dimensions I've been describing, yeah. you know, and maybe, you know, education, I would educate people about them because I think they're, they're scientifically, um, you know, they're derived from scientific research. So it'd be worth educating people about this scientific research. And, you know, I might, you know, suggest even this kind of training or, you know, in the military or other places or, you know, in schools, um, and, and one of the, again, one of the reasons I got interested in flexibility was it's teachable. And it's also, I think, sort of harmless. It's not going to make people worse. You know, I mean, there are some, but this is, again, the problem. Maybe I'm wrong or there's, there's going to be somebody else, you know, in psychology or psychiatry or mental health who thinks, no, that's wrong. Do it this way. But if we take that flexibility George and we get concrete with it so you gave an example of one thing to help me with context sensitivity is to be able to stop and reflect and ask myself some simple questions what's going on why am I feeling like this yeah. you know what what might my behaviors be doing etc like to stop and ask some really concrete and helpful questions are there other concrete things that can help individuals or systems become more flexible well, I think um, thinking it through that way would be the, the way to do that. Um, well, here's a great example. Um, where my daughter goes to school, um, she lives outside, her the school is outside of the city of Philadelphia. And there's a train that goes from the city of Philadelphia out to this sort of smaller uh, towns along this, this one train line, many the relatively old little towns. Um, and the, her, they have, there are a lot of schools in that area. And I've gone to see her and with her um, to her college. And every one of those little train stops has a big sign that says something about, um, are you suicidal? Call this number. Every single one of those little towns. And I've, I've stood in several of those towns on the platform waiting for the train you know, and I'm thinking to myself, and then when you're in the train, you see the sign over and over and over. And I think this is really bad because you're constantly being told, thinking about suicide, you know, and it's it's almost like saying, you know, what, what do you think? Not mm. a bad idea, huh? you know? And so I think that's been poorly thought through. And I think from a um, from a flexibility perspective, if if one were to accept that flexibility is a, is a you know a, 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 vi a viable idea, again, it's based on research. That would not be a good idea. You would use that framework to say, no, it's not a good idea to remind people about suicide every five minutes because that's not that's not a um, that's only going to be 
um, regardless of the situation, regardless of the state of mind they're in, you're going to be reminded about suicide. And so, you know, again, from a flexibility perspective, it would imply that, no, you really need to think about the situations and what works in one situation and not another. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't know how feasible that is from a, on a, from a top-down level. These are tricky, you know, tricky kind of um, uh, institutional questions. Um, well, my thinking's going to that second stage, which is, yes, we can get people to think and think about their context, but the second component to that is I've got the ability to choose from my toolbox the most appropriate tool. But that requires people to have the tools on board. And I suppose yes. that takes me back to my thinking of if you have not been role modelled, if no one has shown you these yeah. tools or you haven't learnt it, and you're saying to me, Jackie, I don't know if it's, it's useful to be in schools or to have blanket education around that. How the heck do people learn those? Well, then, you know, what's a really effective avenue, in your opinion, to help people get those tools on board if they haven't had the privilege of having those well, yeah. by osmosis? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think it's great, and you, one could do an education, you know, in schools or elsewhere in the in the corporate world about these tools, and but it would have to be couched in the very clear message that these tools, and no, any one of these tools is not the answer to to anybody's problems. Gotcha. These are tools you can use in different situations. Gotcha. That's so it's not about te- Gotcha. It's not about teaching the skills. It's how you do it in terms of this is not your be all and end all, learn this and you'll be okay. It's right. about, you know, have a backpack on full of a whole lot of stuff and pull out what exactly. you need and yeah. put it back exactly. if it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the, the it's the framing of that learning. That's important. Right. Exactly. And the toolbox is a, is a really nice um, analog because if you have a toolbox of tools and when whenever and I like to fix things, you open up your toolbox and you look in the toolbox and you decide each time, what should I use? If, if instead the training is, here's a hammer, learn how to use this hammer. And then that's your, your primary, you're told that's your primary tool. You're not going to fix a lot of things with that hammer. Some things you might fix really well and other things you might destroy. So the toolbox is a really nice analogy. It's, it's, it's a tool for the situation. It's the right tool for the right situation, right tool for the job. And I think, you know, and this is, uh, I don't have your research behind me, but it's my good intuitive guess, George, that, you know, if we're actually going to help that group level well-being, that part of uh, our roles as individuals is to know that what you pull out of that toolbox might be different from your partner, from your children, from your teacher, from your colleague, from your boss. And we actually need to come at that compassionately and non-judgmentally that we are all different with different paths and different tools might work for different people. Um, And I think sometimes we get stuck in this idea, whether it's adapting to trauma, whether it's grieving, I think there's a lot of conflict that comes in grief because people grieve differently in different ways Um, that actually you know, this this is an individualistic uh, process. It's not one size fits all. Absolutely, it was beautifully said. Um, and I think it's 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 nicely brought up bereavement because bereavement is a good example. There there was an idea I think earlier on that's that's somewhat fallen away in that literature that there was a right way to grieve. Our five that, stages of grief is that what you're referring yeah five to? St- well, there's one for sure. But even otherwise, I mean, I've actually been an expert witness in some some criminal cases where people were were sus- suspected of foul play because they didn't look like they were grieving the right way after a loss. 
And, the, you know, I was usually brought on to say, well, no, that's actually not true because people grieve in their own way. They're, sometimes people need humor or they need to do a certain thing that, they, that has a meaning to them. And, and that was poorly understood. I think it's better understood now. What's that, your, what's nice your modern research-based updated view on grief then, George, if we kind of segue there before we end? What is my what is my take on grief now? Yeah, you know, if because if, I agree, I don't think there's a secular process you go through. I don't think there's a right way to grieve. Um, but how would you explain it from the research that you have done in terms of the process well, of bereavement? Okay, well, so we find again that 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 most people, um, you know, cope with loss pretty well. Most people get sad. Most people feel intense sadness for a while and yearning, and those processes. Um, they do something. And I think there's a kind of a general, um, uh, I don't know, almost fear of those processes. But being intensely sad after a loss is, is very adaptive. But at the same time, we know that people smile and laugh, too. They kind of go back and forth between those two things. And those are all hugely adaptive. In fact, when we're sad, we're, you know, we're turning inward, we're, we're kind of recalibrating our, our world, our world without the person that we lost. And that's kind of what sadness does. And we often, we, 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 we get sad. We, we, we kind of withdraw from the world a little bit, even for a few seconds, sometimes for 10 minutes. And then we look sad. When we look sad, people take care of us. Uh, then we come out of that state and we all, people often laugh or smile or show, you know, some of the, the, the opposite kind of emotion. And there's a lot of confusion about that, about those, the, that, those processes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, they're, they're, they're enormously uh, valuable. And, um, you know, I think it, it, people using those processes, they, they kind of do what they need to do pretty quickly, like within a few days, a few weeks, usually. Um, they don't, they maybe will continue to feel sad, but, you know, um, they, for the most part, they're sort of getting themselves back on track to, to be able to move on. And I think that, that those are normative processes. And I think, we, if if we would just let people do you know or do what what it is they need to do or or feel comfortable with people doing that that we'd be much better off. I've always enjoyed well not enjoyed but it's resonated with me that concept of waves that certain emotions and feelings and reactions will come in waves and they'll come and go yeah. and um, you know our, my viewers won't know this but three weeks before my daughter was born my father-in-law passed away and he was my you know it was my my husband's best friend they were re- you know they were very very close and it was this weird time of life where you're losing a parent and becoming a parent within a month and that's a very odd and tricky complex set of emotions to manage and I think something that really helped my husband a lot through that time was you can't be sad all the time you can't be yeah. in deep despair and grief 24 7 you know and so it's okay it's okay that the family have sat around and had a laugh and reminisce and actually it's been quite enjoyable. And then five yeah. minutes later, people are, are in tears and all of that is yeah. normal. Totally normal. Yeah. In fact, we, we, and you know, this is why I, I enjoy doing research so much when we have, we interview people and we see the videotapes and we code them for various things, but in the videotapes, you see this over and over and over again, people will be just telling the most wrenching story and look absolutely horrible you know, the facial expressions. And then just minutes later, they're smiling and laughing and telling you a, a delightful story. And then they're back again, you know, in, in pain. And that's just the way it, it works. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the best description of that was actually C.S. Lewis, the, the British writer, 
um, who wrote, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, that yeah. guy. He wrote lion a beautiful with the, book. The wardrobe. What's the title yeah. of it? Yeah. The Lion, the Witch, and the, the Wardrobe. The wardrobe. Yes, thank you. But he wrote he wrote an incredibly beautiful book called The Grief Observed, short little book about his when his wife died that captures many of these. He 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 talked about grief as kind of like a he's a, a world war uh, metaphor of a plane dropping bombs and then circling back around and dropping more bombs. But when it drops the bombs, it's this moment of fear and, 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 and danger, but then the plane flies away and it takes a little while to come back. And that was his description, but I think it's very much the process. So, George, I'm very aware of our time and that you will want to go and have an evening there in New York. But my last two questions for you are, one, for you in your career, what are you most proud of to date? Um, that's an easy question. I'm I'm most proud of a paper I published in 2004, uh, in which I said um, that, in which I argued clearly and for the first time, really, that the majority of people exposed to loss and potential trauma are going to be fine, basically, mm-hmm. fairly soon. And I actually put on on the on the above the door of my office where nobody really could see it. I m- made a little sign for myself. It was a little silly, but I made a sign for myself that said something like, it's not about money, it's not about fame, which neither of those things really come to academics anyway, but it's not about money, it's not about fame, it's about getting closer to the truth. And I told, I put that little sign up to remind myself that I needed to write this paper, which which I, I knew to be true based on the research and not worry about whether they would publish it, not worry about anybody would like it, not whether worry about whether it would get me tenure or not, just publish it. And it ended up going in one of the top journals in psychology and having a, a very large impact. And I'm very yeah. proud of that. Nice. What second question? Well done. <laughs> it's always nice, actually, isn't it, when you do something you're not expecting reward, and then actually it comes in unexpected ways, you know. And yes, yeah, you say what needs to be said because that's what your truth is, or what that truth is from what you've found, rather than doing things for external reaction or praise. Or what's been the most surprising? The most surprising. I think the most surprising is that I've had success in my career. Um, that may sound a little odd, um, but you know, I I, I left um, home when I was seventeen. I think I had a fairly troubled uh, adolescence, and I went off basically completely on my own with no money and no real connections for a while. And about ten years of wandering around the U.S. and doing various jobs, living on farms. I was a sign painter for a while, and it was. Ten year, about 10 years later, around the age of 26, when I discovered that I liked psychology and I decided to go to school, I didn't know if I could even handle school at that age because I hadn't been doing anything, anything academic at all. Um, and very quickly, I began to do really well in school. And before I knew it, I was getting a PhD from Yale. And then before I knew it, I was a professor and, and things went quickly uh, very well. And that was a real surprise. A very nice surprise. Well, it almost replicates your research, isn't it? That against odds, perhaps, or what people might think, or you know, what what others have viewed your trajectory as. Most of us will do okay, and maybe even better than we thought. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, George. Is there anything else you want you want to leave us with that I haven't asked or haven't been novel in my questioning about? No, you quite, your your questions have been wonderful. You're you're very fun to talk with. 
Um, I would leave leave you with I, the thing I like to say actually is that we're going to get through this pandemic. We're getting through it already. We're getting we're going to to get through it just fine. We've already adapted remarkably well, and science is doing a fantastic job, and and everything is going to be okay. And my optimism is holding on, George. <laughs> that uh, at some point soon I'll get on a plane again and see the rest of the world again. Yes, at some point so. it will happen. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to that as well, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, George. Really appreciate your time. Okay. Good, good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. I'm Jackie Maguire, and you've just finished listening to another episode of Mind Brew. This interview, my discussion with George, really made me think and professionally challenged me in my thinking. In my opinion, these are always the best conversations. What did I learn or what are my reflections? That it is extremely hopeful that many of us come out the other side of adversity okay, living and working well. That resilience, well-being and navigating challenge is the same process for the small stresses in our life as it is for the large-scale adverse events we may face. That supporting the learning and maintenance of individual skills is critically important, be it emotion regulation, forming strong social connections or managing thinking. But that this learning must be couched in terms of flexibility. That having individual skills on board doesn't equal an automatic pass to a resilient outcome. But the flexibility to assess your current context, wisely choose an appropriate well-being or adaptation tool, and then assess the effectiveness of your choice is where the gold may just lie. I think this conversation also reinforced for me that well-being and resilience is not a cookie-cutter process. We are all individuals. We all respond differently to situations and we must form our own path of coping that best suits where we are at at any given time. This conversation also serves as an important and timely reminder to be compassionate and non-judgmental when other people have different responses and different needs to us. I hope this conversation provided you with food for thought and reinforced a sense of optimism as we continue on our pathway of the unknown. If you enjoyed this episode of Mind Brew, please share this episode with your network and head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's so very much appreciated. Thank you and have a good day.